Hello folks, I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the second season of the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles. Each episode I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. Today I've invited my friend, filmmaker Zoe Black, to talk to me about the film Under the Skin from 1997, directed by Karen Adler. Here's a trailer. small my mother was everything to me i thought she was beautiful and i wanted to be like her i promised myself to treat myself and visit a nearby town my mother loved flowers and her favorite flowers were roses so she called my sister rose iris mum gave it to me she gave it to me before she died i was going to tell you but i didn't want to hurt you and she called me Hi Zoe, how are you doing? Hi Lillian, I'm great, thanks. How good. are you? Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, glad that you've picked a, a film I've been meaning to watch for a very long time, which I think I discovered almost accidentally because I was looking for the 2013 Jonathan Glazer film and then realised yeah. <laughs> that there are other films with the same title. But before, yeah. before we start talking about Under the Skin, would you like to just do a quick introduction, tell people who you are. Myself? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, my name is Zoe Black. I'm on all social medias at Zoe Black Coffee and I'm a film student. I'm doing a master's in LA right now. Excellent. Um, so why did you choose this film? Yeah, I mean, partly I did see that it looked like you hadn't seen it on Letterboxd and I was A useful quite tool. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, in I some really... ways, because then people can find out that I haven't seen as many films as sometimes I <laughs> I oh make out God. to have seen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I was really just uh, intrigued, curious to find out what you thought about it. And, mm. um, and I saw it for the first time last summer in some one period of the lockdown. Of the lockdown and um, it really just took me aback. Like, I think... I went into it um, thinking, oh, this is a, I don't know, British female director I haven't heard of. Um, and it sort of blew me away. Like, I just, I feel like only now are we really um, seeing to see kind of similar explorations of female sexuality. Like, watching it again sort of made me think a bit of I May Destroy You. Um, so even though yes. it's not a super old film, um, I did just think it was pretty invigorating to watch and uncomfortable to watch but I sort of valued that yeah yeah um, absolutely um I certainly don't think the portrayal of female sexuality in this film had really been done quite to the extent that it is in this film because this is 1997 yeah maybe stuff since uh, and perhaps perhaps if I'd seen it in 1997 I'd have been really blown away by it maybe yeah. maybe like 
in particular sort of Lynn Ramsey and Andrea Arnold's films made Mm. since then and um maybe I'm thinking of Lynn Ramsey because Samantha Morton is in Morven Caller um Mm -hmm. but yeah I don't I don't know maybe we've seen this in recent years in terms of female homosexuality um thinking of things like Ammonite or um Portrait of a Lady on Fire like sort of very Mm -hmm. Films that have been classified as like the female gaze of of um, sort of looking at other women. I'm not so sure I've seen that many films dealing with female heterosexuality in the way that that this film does, which I think I I found. I, I don't know if that's because people think that it must have been done because it's like the norm for women. Yeah. Um, or think- they think it's been done because heterosexuality has been shown on screen but it's almost always masculine sexuality that's being sort of represented yes Um, yeah or the masculine ideal maybe of like a promiscuous woman but exactly for me yeah I was so um I guess that's probably one of the things I love most about this film is the way that it it depicts um this woman exploring her sexuality but it doesn't really hold back in terms of exploring the fact that that is a direct result of like grief and trauma um, as opposed to her being this kind of mysterious femme fatale um, right it's not really doing that at all um, but it was kind of interesting to I was trying to read around it a bit and read reviews from the time as well mm. and I was sort of expecting people to be shocked and appalled um, and actually all the reviews were like pretty restrained which I thought was sort of I don't know. Um, I I don't I don't know. Ironic isn't the right word, but I, it seemed to me that people were trying to play it cool when actually, as far as I can tell, it is pretty unusual, at least for the time. And, and like yeah. you said, even since then, I think um, yeah, it's doing something a little bit, mm. a little bit unusual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because there's um, there's something called the clip test. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a no. sort of online collective, and they look at films to see if they show women deriving sexual pleasure from any activity other than sort of simply being penetrated by a penis. And this film is perhaps the first film I've seen that really sort of passes that test with flying colours that it like, it really, you know, it just, the way that masturbation is shown in this film and other sexual encounters is just really great to see in a film because you just <laughs> don't see that very often um and and maybe it's a good thing if some men see this film and understand I like know. oh like why is she <laughs> doing that <laughs> why is she touching there and it's like I know and I think what was remarkable to me was this was so this was my second time watching it and I was still uncomfortable like I was in the mm. in some of the sex scenes but maybe even more so in the like masturbation scenes I was like oh like I felt you know like it got under my skin <laughs> um, and I was, I was <laughs> trying to I know sorry I don't know why I actually went no it's that. fine it had to happen at some point <laughs> that was a yeah thought I should have batted away um <laughs> but yeah um I mean it's one of those things it's sort of it's hard to explain why other than I guess that we just haven't been exposed to it enough so mm. yeah um. and, and and it's still I think something that 
we're made to feel should we shouldn't talk about or we shouldn't show or or even yeah. do it like I think there's I mean, still yeah. a massive taboo around that for women um and I and, yeah I yeah. do think oh, I just wanted to like add quickly that I think when it comes to masturbation I feel like we can all think of some sort of at least like comedic example from a film where a guy is doing it but um and I think those sort of instances mm make light of the fact that yeah everyone does it or at least every guy does it yeah and there is just no equivalent when it comes to yeah yeah and it goes yeah. it goes beyond that I mean I should say that when I talk say talk about masturbation in, re- in reference to this film it's it's not what perhaps you would have seen in like certain American comedies or um, certain yeah. sort of uh, where you know there's 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 often like a sort of taboo or joke around like a vibrator or a dildo which is still mm-hmm. you know even though it's it's implicative of, of masturbation it's implicative of, of penetrative masturbation whereas this is like showing all, it in various different forms um that's you know, very true which i think yeah. which i think is what what is specifically new in this film I mean I don't want to say unique because I'm aware that you know that it's it's something that other films have gone on to to um to represent but I'm not entirely sure that there that there's really much before this point not that I'm aware of anyway I mean that there probably are and I'm sure people will shout at me if I yeah um, I know there's always some yeah there's always some exception but like uh, I completely agree and uh, yeah I think this it really explores um, fantasy as well like there's all these voiceovers and um, uh, I guess I'm not sure but I, I suppose it could be argued that sometimes you don't know whether these are things that really have happened or are happening or, or whether it's partly what she's thinking of um, and so I think that's that's another dimension to the sensuality of this film. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting point because I did sort of get confused towards the start as to whether or not their mother had had died yet or if it was in the past <laughs> or because it sort of begins and it's 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 not really clear what's happened to the mother. Um which is really fascinating because um the mother is played by Rita Tushingham so she sort of serves as this like synecdoche for um the 1960s British new wave cinema um in particular Taste of Honey from 61 and then things like The Knack and How to Get It um and The Girl with Green Eyes so these these the films that certainly in British cinema are really revolutionary in the way that they approach um representations of female characters and female sexuality in 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 the 60s which really hasn't been touched on before that point and and British mm. cinemas always I think because Brit- those films are often quite independently produced and financed and and the way that they're written and directed they always tend to be a bit further ahead than perhaps Hollywood cinema is um uh, and even maybe to some extent French cinema which which I would think of as particularly in the 60s being very sexually liberal but thinking mm. about it it's only really when Anya's Varda starts making films that that's but that lens is turned onto onto women and things like One Sings the Other Doesn't or, or Cleo de Sancassette um because 
Godard and Truffaut and I mean particularly Godard do not care <laughs> it's like this is this is the this is the male <laughs> uh, sexual <laughs> aspect it's, it's, it's um yeah as, as much as Anna Karina might be on screen she it he doesn't care so much about her sexual pleasure it's more um more the male mm. characters in those films um sorry that was a bit of a tangent but yeah. I think I think no that's the fact that, uh, that that she's in this film um, as someone who you know she does she did do stuff later um, between those sixties films and, um, and 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 being in this film in ninety seven and she's done a few things a few things since um, in fact she's going to be in Edgar Wright's um, Last Night in Soho I think is, oh, is her, really? her latest film yeah she's still going <laughs> but it's love it. Yeah, it's it's really there's so much in that casting decision, especially in a film where For you know sure. Samantha Morton's unknown at this point, um, Claire Rushbrook's pretty unknown. You know, these are these aren't. This is the film that sort of starts them on their careers. Really, they've done they do TV and stuff, but these this is like the first notable film that that those other those two actresses are in. So it's like it's yeah. almost like her being the mother here is sort of passing on to, I mean, I already mentioned Morvan Keller with Samantha Morton as being sort of the future of feminist cinema in the early noughties. So yeah, I think that's really fascinating. I, yeah, it totally is. Thank you for the history. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that's what no, I'm here for. <laughs> because I was, I guess one of my questions is like, was sort of like, what kind of comment is this film making about like, um, I don't know, just intergenerational relationships because you get this sense that even between the sisters, there's this sort of divide um, where even before the mother dies right at the beginning, Iris is clearly coded as like the quirky one, the slightly edgier one, uh, more rebellious. Like she has her very like short cropped hair. And then uh, Rose is extremely like comically uh, kind of stuffy and has these like button up blouses, which always entertained me um yeah. and and so there's there's sort of these like three layers because there seems to be Rose who's sort of emulating the slightly older generation and then you have the mother um who you never really know all that much about and yet um I don't know something that I personally picked up on was you know right at the beginning we're told by Iris that her mum and her sister have a closer relationship and she thinks that the mum kind of prefers Rose to her, but yeah, she's named really after her, fa her, fa her favorite flower, and then she's like the yes. left of the second favorite flower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the second favorite. That is maybe damning, but I do feel mm. like we're seeing this so much from Iris's perspective, and and right after she has that line, actually, I think is when the mum sort of beckons Iris over and is like, "Come sit on my lap," and so um, you do have this kind of unreliable narrator situation going on. Um, and I, I also thought that was, yeah, just maybe an insight into Iris's own insecurity as opposed to what's actually going on. Um, and and yet, at the same time, she's clearly trying to break out of some sort of confines. Um, but it's interesting that then her mum, like, at least to the audience, is actually kind of signifying all this, this like, previous um, kind of decade of, like, yeah, feminism and rebelliousness yeah that absolutely um and I, I think that that sort of 
sisterly dichotomy is really the best um, articulated once once Cyrus is um, put on the wig and 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 got changed, got her new clothes. And she sort of completely transforms the the way that she looks and 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 her gender presentation in that scene. You know, there's a sort of androgynous yeah. um, look to her. There's a scene where she's she wants to dance and she says, "I'll be the man." You know, it's it that and so it's quite mm-hmm. strange when she decides to adopt this sort of hyper feminized persona um and then she comes outside and meets and meets rose um and rose says you look like a slut and she yeah. replies thank you <laughs> um which, which <laughs> i mean <laughs> i really appreciate it yeah. i thought that was there are some but, but it, it, yeah. it it just completely like um that that scene and that sequence encapsulates what their mm-hmm. relationship is like and how how different these two women are and perhaps why it's difficult for them to reconcile um, a friendship, which obviously they ha- they do because s- such is the way of cinema. <laughs> I do but kind of believe you, yeah. that they they have that they have these like underlying similarities. I mean, I haven't really thought mm. specifically about what it is, but I think there's a sense of humor there, for example, and like th- those kind of like exchanges that they have. I think. To me, that gets across, across a sense of this, yeah, um, this uh, underlying way in which they understand each other. But um, yeah, also, I guess I, I am just completely enamored with the costumes in this film and the way that like clothing is used, um, like as as a way that like Iris will can like express herself. Sort of, um, I feel like a lot of the time and most of the time, I guess, in cinema, you just have characters who happen to be wearing clothes, and and you know that. You're supposed to interpret that most of the time as they chose to put on those clothes. Mm. But this is a film that actually really explores that activity and how you can present yourself in mm. different ways to different effects. Um, and I suppose she's going through this grieving process. And um, I mean, I guess I sort of interpret it as she needs attention. She, what she really needs is sort of care. Mm. Um, but the way she goes about that is following this desire for attention, no matter how she can get it, even if yeah. it's her sister calling her a slut or if it's these sexual encounters. Um, mm. But I also like the kind of flip side, which is that even when she's not in these guises that she picks for herself, like there's this uniform that she has to wear for one of the jobs she has later in the film, which right, is sort yeah. of like sailory and very sort of girly, I guess, kind of feminine. Um, it makes her look a lot younger. But it's also, mm. to some extent, you know, this look that's supposed to be kind of flattering and maybe a little bit right. sexy. And so mm. I thought that was an interesting little bit of yeah. subtext that even when she's not sexualizing herself, the world is sexualizing her. Yeah, definitely. And she uses that 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 clothing to sort of to attract herself to men. Um, I thought one of the most powerful moments in the film for me was when she goes to she when she's wearing the wig and and the sort of um bodycon dress and she um she goes to a club and then she's with a guy and then she comes back to the room and she just she sort of lies down and takes off the wig and it's almost like it almost has this sort of revelatory feel to it which which he's he doesn't really quite know what to make of that um when when she's sort of she take the changing of the hair and 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 the way that she then starts behaving differently to how she mm. behaved before. Um, perhaps, perhaps then, 
what she's doing sexually is a part of that craving for intimacy um, and attention. Um, yeah. Yeah, what do, what do you make of that scene? Yeah, I agree. It really stands out. And I also, it feels revelatory and I'm not sure what it's revealing. But mm. I guess to me, um, in that moment, I personally felt like, you know, she's she's childlike, I guess. Um, and I don't know if that's maybe a weird thing to say, but it suddenly it does feel like she's been putting on an act. She's been yeah. pretending to be this like sexy, mature woman. Mm. And then at the end of the day, she's looking for something much more innocent actually even though she knows she has this like sexuality to her I think she really does just want some kind of companionship and intimacy um that I suppose she's sort of been robbed of by like Mm. the death of her mom um and yeah I, I think especially almost what sticks in my mind is the sort of like um the confusion of the man in that situation like I think I don't know if he's how we're feeling or if it's just kind of startling to see that response of like yeah um yeah because he he, it's almost as if he has become attracted to her because he's almost fetishizing this sort of blonde um the, the the sort of blonde femme fatale type character that she's that she's almost playing in that situation um and then he sort of doesn't know how to respond when her appearance become isn't that it's it's a less feminized yeah. pres- re- uh, presentation. It's almost funny to me because I think we've seen her get into this um, kind of yeah guys, and so we've seen the like shoddiness of the wig and how yeah. she the makeup is pretty slapdash, and yet in that moment you sort of realize he's fallen for it. These other men have fallen for it. They they actually layer on what they want mm. to see onto what is quite clearly someone in a wig. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, mm. So that's quite startling too, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose one thing I did think, I mean, this is partly because um, I had, I also hadn't seen the Jonathan Glazer under the skin from 2013 yeah. with Scarlett Johansson and, until until today so I thought well you know I might as well <laughs> I might as well watch it it was re- I don't know if it's because I watched them sort of one after the other that I, that it gave me this impression but the look that Scarlett Johansson has in that film is very similar to the one that Iris has in this film the sort of fur coat there's like curly hair the thick coal pencil on the eyes yeah. and red lipstick and that that sort of sexualized look that um the alien in under the skin uses to sort of lure men in and then she you know turns them into alien juice or whatever it is that she's she's doing Mm, in that film um so it's 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 in I I don't I mean it's possibly pure coincidence but the fact that the films have the same title it's it's interesting that that's the look that they choose in that film as the one that's sort of used to the same effect that in some ways Iris is is aiming to have. I mean, I'm not saying that Iris is a is an alien in disguise, but um, <laughs> um, but but the the intention and and the desire of that is used to the same extent, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But what's yeah. so important is that we don't demonize her for doing that which a lot of films would do, I think, um, in terms in yeah. terms of how she presents herself and how she sort of... Um, if it was a man doing that, it would be seen as, you know, 
fairly normal behavior that because it's a woman it, it, it then throws up these questions I mean the fact that the word slash is used it, it throws up the, mm-hmm. these sort of misogynistic um moralities or, or rather morals that are sort of forced upon women who are seen yeah. as sort of you know desperate or or, or promiscuous as you said um which the film also- just doesn't have um, exactly say. yeah and 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 like what it also does I guess is explored that kind of internalized misogyny like you have the sister the friend character um who and I, I think it's just useful to sort of see that presented on screen because um I think that was probably the thing that also um reminded me of I May Destroy You and that you have these sort of characters who basically do questionable things and yet you're not asked to demonize them you're asked to think deeply um yeah about um about the society we live in I guess and uh, yeah. it's it's hard not to get personal I guess uh when, yeah. when you start to talk about these subjects but I think like um in in my experience <laughs> I found it very easy to beat myself up over like you know bad decisions in the past and then it often like the way I often turn that like harsh lens on myself I think has been through um yeah basically internalized misogyny and um and wanting to live up to some ideal or another um and it almost when I say it out loud it feels idiotic you know because it's sort of it's sort of easy to analyze what's going on I guess what I'm realizing is that you can know what's going on and I feel like you know to some extent maybe Iris in the film knows what's going on when she's acting so promiscuous and yet you can still be a victim to it and 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 end up spiraling I guess um and that doesn't mean that you're an inherently evil person you know as we see Mm -hmm. in the film like her sister actually forgives her like they mend that relationship yeah definitely um and I it's 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 a uniquely female problem I think of how one's morals can be perceived through the choices of clothing we wear. I don't think that men, I mean, maybe they do it to some extent, but certainly not to the level that, that women do where literally what clothes you're wearing can cause you to almost beat yourself up afterwards if, if you know, if someone has made a passing comment or wolf whistled or whatever and you're like oh my god I shouldn't have worn this today or whatever and it's it's like well no (laughs) that's 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 exactly um forcing that I mean uh, to give an example like when I went on university challenge I mean you see so often that it's the clothing that people wear that invites criticism if so everything I wore was like up to my neck and like covering my arms like no flesh on display um same same with my my teammates so it was like because I remember someone who wore a low-cut top or something just got horrendous harassment for that and it's just like that never happens for a guy it's never commented on um so yeah what I found quite it's un- empowering in this film is that Iris does not give a shit <laughs> and, it, yeah. and, and and she uses it as a means of of self-empowerment um to 
sort of blend in in situations and to get what she wants out of situations. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think it's difficult because it's towing this line between, well, if that's the way it is, should we use it to our advantage or what I'm inclined to believe, which is to just sort of condemn the fact that women have to feel, well, don't have to, but do feel that way because of that internalized self-criticism. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah it's I, kind of, sorry, it's unbelievable that still, you know, like you're having to deal with those kind of experiences. But I think that's, yeah, at least the film sort of engages with that and doesn't reduce um, the power that clothing has, especially um, for women. It doesn't reduce that to something that's trivial or, or petty or just like, um, and yeah, it's funny because now I'm thinking of sort of all the famous makeover scenes that you get in like teen coming of age movies. And those are always like so fun and like so upbeat, I guess, but sort of what's underneath that, I guess, is the fact that like it really matters <laughs> like what you yeah. wear um it it can make all the difference um I mean yeah ima ima really imagine affect. imagine like I don't know the clueless closet or um the the, the yeah. sort of the 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 um princess diaries dress scene or whatever imagine if that was with a guy it would just be really boring because it'd be like shall we go <laughs> for the blue will we go for the blue suit or the gray suit today it's like <laughs> Um, yeah unless it's exactly. like play unless there was those films like playing to the sort of gay best friend stereotype and like right if you see what right. I'm, I'm getting at um yeah I think I think that's a really interesting point to make that it, in terms of what we've sort of been conditioned to see in cinema is that costume design and fashion I mean beyond cinema is 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 so pointed to women rather than rather than to men yeah or or or, or, or indeed to um non-binary people i mean every time i see a sort yeah. of gender neutral or non-binary fashion line i mean again is it gonna be gray or is it gonna be beige I mean <laughs> it's like non-binary people do not like color um which which no is fun. Just, exactly <laughs> yeah. a, a, a sort of shapeless clothing and it's just like no that's not what that means yeah I mean, that it's, is it's, yeah it just makes a mockery of the whole gendered nature of clothing anyway I think yeah yeah sorry we're, we're <laughs> talking about big we've, issues <laughs> we've zoomed out we've really... yeah. but that, that, that's the power but, yeah. of this film but it does make you start reflecting on that um and and the relationship between gender and sexuality and the way that we present ourselves to other people yeah exactly and how it affects how you feel about yourself as well um yeah I agree <laughs> mm. and I, th I think it's it, we should probably talk about Karen Adler um as the direct yeah. right, writer and director of this film because she's coming at this subject from quite a unique position in terms of when someone starts making films or indeed starts and ends making films because she's like in her 40s when she makes Under the Skin and then she doesn't make another film it's like this is the film I wanted to make um now I'm gonna go and marry I'm going to marry a peer I'm going to become a baroness and that's the way I'm gonna spend the rest of my life it's like such a power I mean, move <laughs> I have to respect that yeah <laughs> it is incredible but also 
it, I have to wonder what happened then because one of the things she said in a couple of the interviews that I read, I think, was that you know she sort of purposefully wanted to come out and make a statement with this film because she was sort of thinking along the lines of this is my chance, like this doesn't come along very often, and if I'm going to make a feature film, like I want to make a statement and make people remember me, and it, it does seem like like that work to some extent I mean it's a film that's still being discussed today mm. and yeah I I wonder what were the factors which led to her yeah not sort of pursuing that career um, yeah yeah whether I, it was that yeah. she wasn't given more opportunities I know um mm. but I'm 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 happy for her <laughs> yeah because it I mean it was quite a wonderful circumstance that she sort of made made these yeah. these short films um and then the BFI and Film 4 approached her and said, we want you to do this as a feature. They financed it and then and then she made it. Um, which in some ways is a very good thing because the fact if once you've got that, I mean, fr- from our perspective, for posterity's sake, because the BFI and Film 4 sort of constantly restore and um, redistribute these things. So right. it's, it's, it's an accessible film. It's on BFI player. It's, um, you know, it's, it's yeah. not, it's not so, one of these, incredibly hard to find sort of debut features because it's yeah. one of those rare situations where it pretty much uh, makes up the entirety of a director's filmography. Um, mm-hmm. which, yeah. which, yeah, I, I mean, to some extent that's a sad thing because who knows what she might have made later on, but... Um, yeah, um, and she, the... the um, I don't know what what would you call it the genius of casting Sam Morton um Mm -hmm. I don't know it just feels like that there are so many things in this film that speak to Adler's sort of eye and um uh talent and um so I mean yeah at least we have this I think Mm -hmm. I was starting to listen to a panel that she did at the ICA in, in 2015 um and they mentioned that um uh so this was part of an initiative to get more female directors, except right. that they only did it for one year and oh, two films by women directors. And then they decided uh, that that was enough. Crikey. Um, I mean, so you'd, have, I you'd have thought given, given how successful, because this is, you know, I mean, it probably didn't make a ton of money. I don't, I don't. It made don't, like no money. Yeah. It, it won but awards. It, but it, it won awards. Like it won the Michael Powell Award at Edinburgh for, Best mm-hmm. British feature in '97 and the International Critics Award at Toronto. So you know it did well. It wasn't wasn't critically panned and then sort of left yeah. to rot. It was it was celebrated. Um, yeah. So I I, yeah. I do wonder. Um, and 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 it's accessible. So unlike films like I don't know, for example. Um, Jean Delacroix's films in the seventies, like Jean Dillman, mm-hmm. is still heralded as perhaps the greatest feminist film ever made. But it's so hard for people to actually watch it because it's it's uh, <laughs> um, Ackerman sort of made it quite difficult for her films to be um, restored and distributed and and exhibited. So I think I think it's quite interesting that in terms of British feminist filmmaking. There aren't really that many female British directors before this point, um, which is probably why they had that initiative to to, to fund more more female yeah. directors. I mean, female <laughs> think of women directors before um, before the nineties. There there really aren't 
aren't that many. I mean, in the 90s, you have people like Sally Potter and Joanna Hogg and mm-hmm. um, um, Carrie Nadler starting their, starting their careers. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I found this quote, which I found bizarre, from um, Sarah Jameson <laughs> wrote it in, in Movies for Women. And her description of this film is that, and, and of Adler herself, is that it, this film is no 20-something headstrong film gal um, using her first feature film as therapy. <laughs> there is so much, like, <laughs> I mean, especially coming from a woman writing about a woman making a film. There's such uh... misogyny behind that <laughs> statement of like that a woman would, I mean, film gals for starters, um, as a sort of dismissive <laughs> term. I wish, I'm sorry, but I wish film gals was a thing. But there, <laughs> there are no film gals, like you were saying, like, especially when this was being made. Like, what? Yeah, what is the a, context? You know, one of those. Um, yeah. Using it as therapy, as if like, <laughs> The only reason why a woman creates art is as a sort of like externalizing of, of inner conflicts or issues. As sort of, it, it almost implies that the person making this film is a sort of attention seeking individual who wants to. Sorry, I just yeah. I, I I just read it. I was no, but... completely baffled that anyone would see it that way. And the only reason why then they're sort of saying it's not that is because yeah. this is a middle-aged woman who's making <laughs> their debut film. So, you know, we have to take it seriously because there's a maturity to it, um, which mean, you would, you know, if, 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 it was, if it was a young man in their 20s, you know, if it was Orson Welles making his first film, you know, it's like <laughs> the great auteur, you know, the, the <laughs> creative genius begins young yeah. or whatever. But if it's a film gal... We we are we're to just we're to, sorry uh, that, that sorry term but is, new Twitter bio yeah <laughs> yeah um, own it reclaim it absolutely I but think in this context it's so bizarre and pointed against like young female filmmakers yeah it is and it's I think that's interesting also given um I, I read one interview where um towards the end um. Adler sort of like politely complains that she keeps getting asked whether this is an autobiographical film and like mm. her answer is like well yeah you know partly but like also no as in I think what she means is like of course she's drawing on like her own kind of emotional life but it doesn't seem to be the yeah. case that like this exactly happened to her um, and I, I think she was mm. trying to explain to this interviewer why um why it was so frustrating uh, and I guess that quote Really yeah, because it's 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 it never asked with the sort of um, the point of derision that often lies behind that question of of, of biography. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never asked to male film directors. Well, mm-hmm. you can only write and direct a film to some extent by pulling from your experience of the world. So, of course, every film to some extent will be biographical. Yeah. Um, and and actually, that's something that, particularly in British cinema, um, coming out of the sixties, seventies, and into the eighties, is very much what film directors were doing. They were they were pulling from experience the sort of the, the new queer cinema, as as um, B. Ruby Rich calls it, in in the early nineties, is 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 all entirely pulled from personal experience in real life. Yeah. That's what British cinema has always done. Well, I mean, certainly 
since the end of the Second World War has done so brilliantly and so uniquely is social realism and sort of kitchen sink dramas, um, sort of minimalist yeah. aesthetics, sort of pulling away the, 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 the trends of Hollywood to create something, um, something that speaks directly to British life as it's lived by, you know, various different people from all different social backgrounds and I, I I think that to say that that's not <laughs> to criticize a woman for doing that is just preposterous <laughs> exactly um, yeah and I think yeah I think that's what she said as well is like no one asks Mike Lee if his film yeah are autobiographical they just don't uh, think exactly. to ask that question yeah yeah um yeah sorry I'm just sort of <laughs> <laughs> it's making me cross um but it's 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 like um because i meant i i said like the, the female directors coming out of the 90s and i said joanna hogg um okay. i mean she makes her first short film in 1986 caprice with tilda swinton she doesn't then make feature films until i think 2007 is unrelated and then wow. archipelago exhibition 2013 and then and then the souvenir which is Mm-hmm. you know all of her all of her feature films are, are pulled from her experience um but is that because it was only when she became a middle-aged woman and and she could be sort of deemed to have this sort of um I don't know gravitas of experience behind her that she's allowed to make I, a film yeah. like the souvenir I don't I don't know because as I said it, for men it's it's possible to then just start making those films once you're you know once you're in the system as it were um whereas whereas maybe that's not so much the case for female directors even now yeah that's a really interesting point um and yeah I do remember listening to her speak um one time and it's it's fascinating like her career and how how long I guess it took her to start doing what it seems like she always wanted to be doing, which is mm. making feature films. Um, but yeah, I hadn't thought about it in those terms of sort of waiting until you have the uh, the right kind of stature to then mm. make your autobiographical film. I mean, I wonder if it is maybe changing now. I mean, I guess mm. I am thinking of like, you know, Greta Gerwig, her directorial, well, her yeah. solo directorial debut is very autobiographical. Well, actually, I don't know. She said that Little Women is more autobiographical. So actually, mm. maybe this really is an issue to think about mm. uh, in terms of people want to put, yeah, women in these boxes when they go to make art and cinema. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the misogyny, it, it, the sort of inherent misogyny behind the the um, the reception of Little Women is is, a, is an excellent example. Oh, of like that's... <laughs> the way that it was sort of nominated for awards and then the only Oscar it won was like best costume. It's like, no, w- 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 women can do costumes and period dramas and biographical <laughs> films um, and they're not allowed to do anything else. It's just ludicrous. Um, but I think, yeah. all right, I think it is changing. Um, particularly, I think COVID has almost allowed um the more independent british films directed by women to sort of break i mean because normally there'd be like if it was say for example in the summer last year um normally there'd be like two or three blockbusters coming out every week and they sort Mm -hmm. of dominate the discourse and then these smaller films don't come through um whereas the bbc did a real drive to sort of 
premiere on television um, films like um, Perfect Ten, which is an excellent film, mm-hmm. um, things like Claire Oakley's uh, makeup, and you know there was a, there was a number a sort of yeah. number of these films directed by women, quite young women making. So maybe mm-hmm. may, maybe maybe there is a change in that. But, um, I mean, I'd like to think that that's not only because there's a global pandemic. Um, I mean, t- to be fair, there there is a change in um, the pool of directors being called upon by Disney and, and, and in particular Marvel. I mean, I'm thinking of, of Chloe Zhao, who's just done um, Nomadland. Her next film is going to be... Mm-hmm. Is it the, is one, uh, it's the one, Eternals? It's, it is the Eternals that, that that's hers, and then I think so. <laughs> some, someone like Nia DaCosta, who's done Miss Juneteenth and is now going to do Candyland, and I think Captain Marvel too. Um, you know, it's like mm-hmm. uh, to some extent, one mourns the fact that you know they're not going <laughs> to continue making. Um, highly artistic independent art house films but make, make, what, what I think often happens is that they do one for the studios to get the money yeah. and the financing and they do one for them so hopefully they'll maintain that they won't just then, think, like get stuck in that system um, and I think that's brilliant I think that's what like so many male directors have had access yeah. to in the oh, past like, is that ben, ben Wheatley is, in particular I think is a, is, is a fascinating example of that where he'll do like mm-hmm. Rebecca for Netflix and then his next film is like um a sort of very low budget um gothic horror film (laughs) and then and then he's gonna do tape Tomb Raider 2 so it's like um exactly yeah so you wonder why because but you wonder why (laughs) it is that like so many male directors are revered and they've had access to that courage trajectory where Mm. they can make a bunch of money and then do what they want to do um and then obviously there's obvious a lot of the times films that people love I mean I'm sure that's like a gross oversimplification but I am also really like um encouraged by like these exciting new directors being given opportunities at massive studios um and yeah um I just yeah I do wonder in terms of the films that um you know women and um non-binary and uh, gender non-conforming directors make on their own terms I wonder how long it will take for um that kind of yeah that label that's attached of autobiographical um Mm. I wonder if we will get to a point where that that stops being attached so immediately um yeah yeah I, I I I think so I mean that's an interesting question in itself because I almost wonder if the only reason why um why people start getting behind I don't know trans directors or non-binary directors is because they want more more of those stories being told and it's like well what else can you pull from but your own experience but um I think what's quite cool is when a director who has sort of already been established then comes out and 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 and, you know sort of publicly discusses the fact that you know I mean, the Wachowski sisters in particular, mm-hmm. um, where like the Matrix is suddenly like the the most <laughs> amazing, brilliant um, blockbuster um, created by 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 trans women, and then um, mm-hmm. actors coming out as non-binary and so, on. and you know, it's like oh, there we 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 didn't think it was as diverse as it is, and actually 
there is there is a precedent is what I'm trying to get at so yeah it makes so it, it makes people who similarly identify feel like there might actually be a place for them in the, in that sort of you know what's what's previously been the sort of yeah. what the boys club of of what cinema is um that there might be a place for us after all um yeah. and it's but it's, so, but it's, it's still weak <laughs> yeah it's weak but it's so true that now it is sort of you can't ignore it right it's mm. kind of for better or worse it's out there yeah in the mainstream for people to engage with and so um yeah mm. Absolutely. It's a wild ride. <laughs> it is. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in relation to Under the Skin? I didn't really like the music. Um, oh, the, the music's music... interesting. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> that the, the, it's by um, Ilona Sekash, who's mm-hmm. um, done quite a lot of television music. She does. She's she sort of um, did music for various different period dramas and, and 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 sort of tv plays and things yeah i don't know it's it's it feels very dated it sort of dates this film quite specifically i i and, and yeah. i sort of the music in line with the sort of slow motion cinematography at times <laughs> just feels so like late 90s early noughties that yeah. it 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 means that the film becomes ugly almost um i mean this is an issue i have with 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 fashion of that time anyway it's, the, <laughs> it's not particularly aesthetically pleasing um yeah I what, mean, what did I, you make of it <laughs> i i kind of love the fashion but the music to me i think it was just very it, it you're so right in that it really attaches it to a specific period of time and it and also um like I couldn't help but then be reminded of like train spotting and mm. so and it's so like it's cinematic kind of um I don't know uh relations I guess and mm. that was annoying to me I mean I don't know I actually quite like train spotting but I think for me this just felt like even though the music was composed the way mm. that it was um put into the film made it feel like this sort of um just like surface level addition it didn't really feel um part of the texture i mean i i think that's an issue i have in in many films i mean the most recent example where i really felt took issue with there being a non-diegetic score in a film which was sort of supposed to be real and realistic and and naturalistic in particular um, was Nomadland by by Closure, where the, mm-hmm. the scores by bloody Einaudi, who I absolutely <laughs> no, hate. is it? Yes. So you get this sort of <laughs> plinking, plinking drivel on the piano come over these exquisite oh. shots and this film that is so rich and so beautiful. And every time I'd just be like, no, go away, music. <laughs> we don't, you don't, we don't want you silence or the sound of the landscape would work so much better um and i think that that's true of this film as well or or more just in general sort of as i said earlier the sort of kitchen sink films that we get in britain is that if you didn't have Mm -hmm. that sort it's like it's it's so manipulative of emotions it's like oh it's swelling now so we need to feel this way or it's sort of you know fun at this point so we need to be light and it, yeah I love film music very I, much and yeah. when it works it really mm-hmm. works but in 
I I think that in this case and in in the case of Nomadland, it's it's like doesn't need to be there. Um, by contrast sure. to the yeah, other I... un- other under the skin, where the music's by Mika Levi, and it's it's not really. Mm-hmm. Calling it music feels a bit odd because it's this sort of swelling soundscape of of that's really immersive and there's electronic sounds and this sort of ethereal violins and it, it works really well. It's doing, I mean, her scores and um, I think also the scores of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross um, from the Social Network onwards are they are, are doing something really exciting with film music where it's like there doesn't have to be a melody or a detectable <laughs> melody it just it just needs to sort of um exaggerate or emphasize or draw attention to the atmosphere that the film's trying to create yeah. in this case it doesn't it doesn't do that <laughs> yeah sorry that was quite yeah. a long-winded way of saying that I just don't wish no, I just wish I it think, wasn't there um I I agree I think that's so interesting um especially like, that comment about manipulating emotions which I feel so often and it and it can really like take you out of the world of a film and I was also thinking um like you know at the at the very end basically she has she sings a song um Mm. and we haven't really heard her properly sing up until that point and I watching it I felt like that could have been a much more impactful moment if maybe there had been actually less music leading up to it um because it's 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 yeah it's a really lovely scene um yeah her singing is lovely um because it's not something a side that we've perhaps an artistic or or um, it's a side to her that we haven't seen up until that point yeah. in the film, um, and it's a really beautiful way to way to bring it to a close. And I think you're right. I think that would have stood out so much more significantly if the rest of the film had perhaps been a bit quieter or only used diegetic music and sounds which yeah. which I feel like these sorts of films need I mean obviously that's something that comes with budget because you, you mentioned train spotting um again mm-hmm. that that's a film with a significantly higher budget than this one so they <laughs> they they, they sure. can they can afford to use Iggy Pop and you know the the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of best-selling soundtrack that train spotting had um whereas they could they probably couldn't afford that they can afford to have Samantha Morton doing her own rendition of Alone Again Naturally, but um, <laughs> then just leave it at that. Um, it, yes. it, yeah, things like that really frustrate me. It's like, yeah. I, I want to love this film, but there's always something that sort of hold, holds me back from... from this, this, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that I keep mentioning Nomadland because it's, it's, it's a unique example of the film which I would absolutely love to say is perfect, but I can't because the score is just horrendously bad. Wow. Um, yeah. And then I see reviews that say, oh, it's really beautiful and it made me cry. It's like, don't give in. <laughs> That's what they want you to feel. I mean, <laughs> Audi, I guess, is popular for a reason, but oh um, I, it's, a, it's a shocking yeah. choice. I haven't seen it yet, annoyingly. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, it's... can't comment, but... He's yeah. done a number of film scores. It's just like no, I, yeah. <laughs> it, it it just it just from makes me think of like um, sort of dentist waiting rooms. Yeah, or, um, <laughs> it's it's such light, easy listening. I think they call that kind of thing, and it's like <laughs> that has no place in cinema. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel um, quite passionately about it. It's a hard, I think music, I mean, I'm, let's not get into a whole discussion, but I, mm. I, music is something I feel like I'm only just starting to appreciate because it sort of toys this line, and I guess that's to do with diegesis as well, where mm. like sometimes when it's really working, it's almost invisible, I guess, like you were saying with some of those more modern scores. And yet it can also be this thing that you appreciate suddenly that's like some amazing moment in a film and you and you realize the music is a huge part of that. Yeah. Um, but simultaneously, it ca- that same effect can be the thing that takes you out of the scene or the moment. Mm. Um, so it has to, it's a really delicate balance, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like lens and- flares or things hitting the lens of the, ca- of the camera. <laughs> I just hate because it's just like, oh, whoa, we're not in the film anymore. I'm sat in a cinema right, watching yeah. a film, um, which which <laughs> I find I, I do find frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I think I I do really love um, this film Under the Skin, um, mm. but I will say I think um, I mean maybe maybe it's a testament to it, but I I didn't feel myself sinking into the film. I was always slightly on the edge of my right. seat, and I don't think that's just to do with the music or any one element, um, or at least I can't put my finger on it um but it, it it's this it was an interesting experience for me um and yeah, I think most likewise. of the time when I yeah when I really like a film I can tell because I want to watch it again yeah. and with this I don't necessarily want to watch it again but I do really like it so mm. yeah no I, I, I agree <laughs> I found it fascinating um you know there yeah. were there were elements to it as as I've said sort of um more, more in terms of stylistic elements that I, I didn't like, but in terms of narrative uh-huh. and, you know, we're talking about gender and sexuality in this, on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, you, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I wholeheartedly recommend yeah. anyone who's, who's um, interested in that. I mean, I, and I would, I would say any, in particular, um, female audiences to watch it because as we've said there are aspects of it that you just don't really see very often so it's quite refreshing to see that represented on screen I definitely agree I think yeah I think everyone can get something out of this Mm, yeah well thank you very much Zoe oh well thanks so much for having me I've had the best time if you've got an idea for an article or a podcast you can contact me via twitter my handle is at lilcroft with three hours in lil which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me the Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip!